This episode of the EdSearch Podcast is brought to you by the Elementary Education Program at Emporia State University. The online master's in elementary education program at Emporia State is designed for career changers interested in becoming elementary teachers. Learn more at emporia.edu slash grad. That's emporia.edu slash grad. Hey, students. I sure do miss you. Who would have thought that uh, we've already had our last days together? Um, in person, at least. That's a professor at Texas State University. In what was the first recorded lecture she sent to students when the campus shut down due to COVID-19 about six weeks ago. But here I am. I'm going to keep making you videos every week. Um, and keep trying to teach you cool stuff. As this chaotic and unexpected semester is coming to a close, we wanted to know how well this online teaching went and what it felt like from the instructor's point of view. Was it as good? Did the students seem to learn as much? Was this professor able to teach her students all the cool stuff, as she put it, that she wanted to? Hello and welcome to the EdSurge Podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and editor here at EdSurge, we're a national publication that covers education. I was particularly interested in, in how well these large lecture classes translated into a remote format. After all, these are the kinds of classes that I think many people think of when they close their eyes and imagine college teaching. So I checked in with two different professors who just finished up teaching their classes for the term. The first prof I talked to was Brian Ballow, a longtime history professor at the University of Virginia. He's won awards for his teaching there. The large lecture course he was doing this semester, which had about 100 students in it, is called Viewing America, 1940 to 1980. It's one of those titles with the colon in it. Viewing America, 1940 to 1980. The topic is a broad survey of United States political history, but political defined capaciously to include a broad swath of cultural history and social history. Before the pandemic, Ballow gave lectures twice a week, on Mondays and Wednesdays. And the students also had another meeting in small groups with a TA once a week. After COVID-19 hit and the university shifted to online teaching, Ballow started recording lectures and then posting them once a week on Sunday night usually for students to watch at their convenience during the week. And TAs still led those smaller group discussions at the same time, they usually happened, but now those were live on Zoom. And Ballow started sending a weekly email out to his students to go over what he expected that week as far as the assigned readings and a required film viewing each week. Ballow had never taught online before, and he guesses that none of his students had taken a class online either. Uh, the exposure to, quote, virtual learning uh, skews, as far as I can tell, uh, in terms of income and in terms of, quote, um, the stature of the university. Uh, Uni university of Virginia is considered to be an elite school. Uh, it certainly, I think, um, attracts um, a lot of middle to upper income students as compared to a community college, for instance. And so I'm guessing, based on the data of how education, higher education works, along that spectrum, then it probably is the first time that a lot of these students have taken a complete online course. The other professor who agreed to debrief about their large class this term was Rachel Davenport, a senior lecturer at Texas State who has also won a bunch of teaching awards. 
She's the one who we heard from at the very top of the show. Her larger class this term was for about 100 students, and it was on the topic, The Biology of Sex and Reproduction. This one was something of an experimental lecture class, one that used active learning techniques. And so I taught it in one of our brand new smart classrooms. We have all of these different um, setups for active learning. Like all the students are at these grouped tables of six. Um, And so for every lecture, there was a little bit of lecturing, but there was also an active learning activity and students were doing a lot of group work. So that's what it looked like pre-remote learning. Once the pandemic hit, Davenport had to quickly pivot online as well. For her, that was less foreign, since she's actually taught fully online courses in the past. On the fly, I actually told my students, here's what I think I'm going to do, which was I'm going to make videos and send out weekly to-do lists, which would include asynchronous tasks. And I did that because I have several students that don't have good access to internet or devices or who suddenly find themselves with childcare or or lack of childcare. (laughs) So I put, uh, I made everything asynchronous and um, gave them weekly to-do lists. All right. And so when you say make videos, lecture videos, I suppose. No. So this is where I struggled. Like, what do I do here? So some of the options were, you know, once I decided asynchronous and not to hold classes via Zoom, let's say, then options were, do I go through and just record it as if I were lecturing to a class? or And, and the problem there is I, I have trouble watching a video for that long, even if I like it. <laughs> so um, I, I think... I don't know if if my students would want that. Now, I did ask them at the end of the semester in a survey, and about a third of the students do, did say they wished that I had made full lecture videos. Two-thirds of the students were really pleased with what I did instead. So what I did instead is I made short videos. I tried to keep them under 15 minutes per week. And in it, I said, um, as you go through the notes, here's maybe the one tricky part I think that you'll come up against. And so maybe I would explain through a figure or something like that, or point out um, as you go, don't forget this is connected to this. I would kind of say big picture things. Um, And then I would also describe in the videos what kind of activity I wanted them to do. So they were much more succinct videos. Ballo also realized that attention spans may be a little different with the online videos. So he changed things up as well. I kind of flipped my lecture style. I said, all right, I know you're not gonna watch for eight minutes, more than eight minutes, so here are the takeaways in the first eight minutes. Now, if you wanna learn uh, some of the details that make history interesting, uh, and if you wanna learn what caused some of these takeaways, then you're gonna have to watch the rest of this lecture. So how did it go? As regular listeners of this podcast know, our episode last week explored a nationwide movement where students are asking for partial tuition refunds because they feel the teaching isn't as good online and that they're not getting the full experience that they were paying for. You should check that episode out if you missed it. After you finish this one, of course. Anyway, so I asked both of these professors, do they think the quality was as good online? Did the students learn as much? That's such a good question. 
I mean, my gut tells me probably not. You know, the optimist in me wants to say, sure. But I, I think, you know, my gut says they probably didn't learn quite as much. And it was probably that mix of your pulling punches to make sure everybody could do it. And, Correct. And knowing, and maybe the last minute planning, which... I think, yeah, I think that's right. Because, you know, when I've taught online courses, I have months to prepare this time I had a week. Um, and so there's so many things that if I were teaching this as an online course, I would have done that I couldn't do this time. Um, so I do think I could make this into a good learning experience, but not on the fly like I did. Um, and I think also some of the topics we talked about, you know, when we think of learning, if we think of just under, like understanding key facts or remembering things or that like even just sort of even higher level bloom stuff i think i think that's one kind of learning but i think another is thinking about and talking about how does this apply to the real world so when we were doing case studies we would talk about um in what way is this affecting uh surgeries in what way is the or, or elective or non-elective surgeries in what way is this affecting the olympic national committee's regulations in what way is and, and i think that stuff without their group work anymore it, those case studies stopped and so i think um did they learn the material baseline that i wanted them to learn sure but did they really get to process it in a more intricate way not at the end of the semester, not with that last material. I asked Ballo that same question. I put it the way I answer questions like that about teaching in general. I think the students who wanted to learn a lot of history really did learn a lot of history from this class. Uh, certainly content-wise, it was all there. Um, it was... I don't think quite as engaging. I, I, you know, staring at a screen is is a hard thing to do. My guess is their attention wandered. But um, honestly, Jeff, I'm not quite sure how many students are checking their email when they're listening to my lectures in person. Um, yeah. I I teach a course that's not the course I just taught, but I teach a course called Digitizing America. I'm not going to not allow computers. In my classroom, I do. I leave it up to the students. Uh, I treat them as adults. But there are lots of ways for your attention to wander, even in <laughs> a lecture class that where you're sitting there and professors a few yards away. So uh, again, I think those students who really wanted to learn could have all of the materials were accessible. Um, I did lighten the reading load a little bit uh, once we stopped meeting in person just because uh, I'm pretty sure these students have a lot on their minds and they're also working in conditions um, that are not necessarily ideal, especially those students who live in smaller houses or are in more confined spaces. Many of them were at home with siblings, um, that kind of thing. After the break, what surprised these professors most about shifting to online? Stay with us. Do you know someone interested in becoming an elementary teacher? Emporia State University's 33-credit-hour elementary education master's program allows individuals to do just that, regardless of their background of study. 
the coursework is available online, and the clinical classroom experience can be completed at a placement near you, allowing you to earn a master's degree without changing locations. In as little as two years, Emporia students will not only have a master's degree, but they will also be eligible for an elementary education teaching license, depending on their home state's requirements. Send your paras, stay-at-home parents, subs, and anyone else who might be interested to emporia.edu grad to learn more. That address again is emporia.edu grad. Now back to the episode. Okay, now that this unprecedented semester is over, what have these professors learned that they can bring maybe to their future teaching, whether that's online or in person? To get at that, I started by asking both of these experienced teachers what was unexpected about the remote experience. Here's the thing that surprised me the most, Jeff. I had more one-to-one interactions over the substance of history uh, than I've had in any semester of teaching. How did those happen? Yeah. Meaning I scheduled phone calls with students, meaning that I had Zoom meetings with students. I would write to my large lecture class once a week with a quote update. I guess I it was more than once a week because I ended up sending about 10 of these. And it was pretty much giving them a sense of what was going to happen in the coming week. And I, I do think that that's one of the downsides of this virtual teaching. They're just a, the logistics, all of a sudden, simple things, returning papers. <laughs> you know, it all can be done, but you have to think about it a lot more. And I, I found with this very different way of teaching, it was, I felt it was very important every week to send the students an email uh, laying out very specifically what the reading was for this week, what the assignments were, what, what we'd be discussing in discussion sections, what I was gonna lecture about, that, that kind of thing. Uh, not to mention upcoming exams or papers that were due. Uh, but I always ended by telling the students that I would be happy to talk to any of them uh, to just send me an email. And much to my surprise, they did. And often, in a very high percentage, those discussions were substantive. Now, I have in-person hours uh, for office hours uh, when the campus is, is in session. And, you know, students come to that, but... I just found the discussions, and I don't know why this is, Jeff, but I found the discussions over the last six weeks to be far more substantive, far more about history, far more about the content of the class. And, and we got into other things as well. Uh, and that truly made this an incredibly rewarding semester to me, this, the, that the fact that there could be this kind of one-to-one. I never actually expected students to take me up on the offer, to be honest, and they did. And I don't mean I spent 24-7 on the phone with students, but there were a lot of direct connections. And for me as a teacher, that's really important. And I hope that it was valuable to the students who took advantage of that a lot of students were really anxious. Um, A lot of students are really anxious. A lot of people around the entire world are really anxious. 
And I, I think that actually getting in to the material uh, was a welcome relief, certainly from thinking about coronavirus, and this is further speculation, but after spending you know, six weeks locked in your house with your family, uh, maybe it's a nice way to get away from your family, virtually. Davenport, though, had a different experience as far as her contacts with students. Yeah, it was definitely less, um, less interaction when we went remote. And part of that was because um, in this particular class, it was so, I had so many active learning activities and the room is set up such that I can float around it so easily and check in with the groups as they work. And, um, and so I had such great interaction with students. And so when we went remote, that was far less. Now I did, um, get a ton of emails and plenty of students coming into my zoom office hours. So that was still really nice, but in general, it was definitely far less than I would have gotten in person. So what struck Davenport the most from this unexpected remote teaching experience? Do you know, I have to say, I was actually surprised at how well the students handled it. I had, I mean, I think for some students, it was no problem at all. Maybe they've taken online classes, maybe they have really great devices, internet connections, no problem. But I was really surprised that I lost, I lost no students. No students withdrew or dropped the course. Um... They all, you know, worked really hard to some of my students reached out and I helped them get access to Internet or get, you know, so I was surprised at how everybody pulled it together. I mean, a class of 100 students, I would have expected one or two or more (laughs) to drop off the map. But um, I was surprised that they really all made it work. Even though this odd COVID semester is over, there's still plenty of uncertainty about the fall. While most campuses that have announced their plans say they do intend to teach at least some classes in person, other colleges have already said they're going to continue remote for the fall. I asked Davenport what advice she has for professors who might still be teaching online when the new academic year starts. So I know, I don't know if this is true for all states. I know that for accreditation for in Texas, in order to teach remotely or online, you you have to have completed some kind of training program. Um, and those can come in all different forms. Uh, and there's there are lots of different people who offer them and most universities offer them as well. I honestly think doing some kind of online training is so helpful um, because things that you think about, like sometimes you just think about the logistics of setting things up, but maybe you aren't thinking about student engagement. Like how do you really engage them? And sometimes something as simple as making a quirky little intro video, you don't think like, oh, they're not learning from a quirky intro video. Why would I need that? But it really does pull them in and get them more engaged with the course material. So it's, you know, sometimes there's these little extra things that you can do that you might not think of uh, just off the top of your head. So I think doing some kind of formal training, and they're really flexible. You Usually you learn how to teach online, online. So signing up for a program like that over the summer, I think is such a good idea. Um, back to your class for a minute for this last semester. Did you do anything to mark the end of it? Was there anything special to kind of finish this odd, you know, give closure to this odd semester? Uh. Yes, in a more professional way and a less professional way. 
in my more professional way, it was emails um, with lots of celebratory, you know, uh, statements and things like that. In the slightly less professional way, the very last video I made for my large lecture students, uh, I was wearing cat ears and I started the entire video with, hey, all you cool cats and kittens, which is from Tiger King. <laughs> Uh, and apparently that was a huge hit, just me being very silly like that. And, uh, I guess part of my video made the rounds on social media. <laughs> and what about Ballo? Did he do anything unusual for his last virtual class lecture? Um, the only thing I did that was special was wear my UVA sweatshirt, uh, when I lectured. Um, <laughs> Gotcha. Um, I, I didn't do anything special, but you know, I, I wouldn't have, uh, right. I, would, I, I wouldn't have now what didn't have, you know, it's kind of a tradition to clap for your professor at the end of the class. And I've had several students who have written nice notes and, and said, well, I really missed being able to clap for this class. <laughs> so, so on, on the, you know, on the, uh, on the, you know, so from the other end, but we don't, in a large lecture class, I normally don't do anything special. Now for my small research seminar where some of these students wrote, <laughs> they wrote research papers that might be publishable if they want, if they want to do some more work. Um, normally I would take them out at, uh, to a pizza place or something in the last class and we would celebrate in person them making it through the year and doing this primary research and writing a 25-page paper, writing what amounts to, um, in some cases, the uh, amounts to a master's thesis, uh, doing it while they're taking four other classes. You know, that really is something worth celebrating. And I, I very much missed that in-person experience of watching them gather, handing in their final research paper and kind of letting them kick back and uh, celebrate the moment a little bit. I asked Ballo if he would share with me the last recorded lecture that he sent his students, because I was kind of curious to see how he ended things with this large lecture class on viewing America in 1940-1980. In the end, he made reference to this current pandemic, this big historic moment we're all living through right now. And he argued that his discipline can help us in this time. But I do believe that what history can do is remind us of some of the strengths that we have as a nation when we're facing these kinds of challenges. He then played a film clip that he said made that point about resilience. It was from a 1967 film, In the Heat of the Night. And then he said farewell, talking into his laptop's webcam all by himself to students he may or may not ever see again in person. So, stay safe, stay engaged, stay in touch. Thanks for taking this class. Bye-bye. This has been the EdSurge Podcast. Each week, we bring you stories like this one. And we have literally hundreds of episodes in our archives, about 300 of them. So please subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts, and check out those past installments, like the recent interview with YouTube education star John Green. We're going to keep diving into how the pandemic is changing and challenging education, 
If you like what we're up to, please help us out by telling a friend about the Ed Church podcast or sharing a link to the show on social media. That is the best way to support us. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. Thanks, as always, to our fearless editorial leader at Ed Search, Tony Wan. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening, and be well.